Hello everyone, welcome to Dan Snow's History Hits. We've got a living legend on the podcast today. Not every day I can say that. A living legend. Natalie Zeman Davis was born in the 1920s. She is an adjunct professor of history and anthropology at the University of Toronto, a professor of medieval studies there as well. Toronto, it's my second hometown, it's where my mum is from, I'm half Canadian, so I've got a natural, natural inclination to celebrate anything from Toronto, but that inclination is not required when it comes to Natalie Zenon Davis, because she is a living legend. She's been described as one of the greatest living historians. She was the second ever female president of the American Historical Association, and she is a brilliant communicator of history, a brilliant writer, and a brilliant scholar. I had her on the podcast, deep into her 90s, talk about why she's still doing history, why she loves history. What's the point of history? What can we learn from it? I asked her, in all those decades of doing history, has she changed anyone's mind about anything in any helpful way? She was brilliant. Her brilliance did not extend to knowing who she was talking to, quite rightly, who the hell's Dan Snow. So she decided to call me Ted Snow all the way through. And we've left that in because I want you to hear my, my very English, my very awkward response to that. And it goes without saying that when you're on telly or on podcast, people come up to you on the street and call you the wrong thing, you always answer by any name they choose to give you. Correcting someone in how they say your own name, I think, is the height of bad manners. You can see all the work we're doing on History Hit TV, which Natalie Zeman Davis very kindly refers to. You can go and check that out on History Hit TV. It's the world's best history channel. We've, we're building it. It's online. We've got hundreds and hundreds of history films up there. We're making more every time. We're hiring new staff. It's very, very exciting. If you go to historyhit.tv, use the code POD6, you get... Six weeks completely for free. So please, please head over and do that. We're growing all the time. We're getting better all the time. We're doing it with your support. So thank you very much. And thank you also to everyone who's rated this podcast. We're high in the charts because of you guys. It's so ridiculous. It's not about how many people listen. It seems to be a lot about how many people are rating us. So there you go. Thank you for doing that. It's a total pain. And I'm very grateful. Five stars and good reviews. Thank you very much. See you later, everybody. Here is Natalie Zaman Davis. Natalie, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. This is an honour. It's a pleasure to be with you, Ted Snow. Well, that's very kind. So, I'm reading your article of doing history at 90 years old. <laughs> yeah. It is hugely inspiring. Are you 90 now? I'm 91. 91. I, I, since I wrote that several months ago, I've passed that border. And, and still going strong? Still going? Well, I hope so. I'm, I'm still loving it. <laughs> well, that's what I want to talk to you about. Such an eloquent, passionate defense of history or, or a rallying call for history. What is keeping you going? Age 91, you could be enjoying yourself, drinking gin down at the tennis club. Why are you doing history? <laughs> it's, it's a pleasure to continue to discover the past, uh, to f try to unearth its mysteries. I don't claim I always do succeed in it, but to try and to tell stories about it. I think I'm not only a person on a quest, but I'd like to be a storyteller uh, as well. And it's that joint pleasure of sharing uh, what one can discover and uh, both suggesting the unraveling of mystery, but also uh, pointing to some of the problems that we have yet to figure out. So you're someone who believes that the historian's craft is about uh, def definitely shining a light onto the, 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 the nooks and crannies of the past, but also telling it, narr narrative is important to you, you think? Uh, yes. Uh, it's, it's not that uh, uh, history is only to be told in narrative forms. I'm, as I'm very much interested in sort of, if you must, to painting that is just describing uh, the character of a society 
or the, the character of a life or the networks that people have. So that it's also a description. You might say a form of word painting that you put together from all the documents that you find and all the texts and stories from the past. So it's that as well as narrating the way things move. The historian's challenges, of course, is to try to find the right words and maybe pictures too to put it all together, to collect all the material, which I love to do. I just the just, oh, maybe I can find something else. Maybe I can find something else in the archives or in some documents or some books. And then trying to figure out how it all fits together, both diachronically and synchronically, to use those clumsy words, that is both what the pattern is and what the movement is, what the change is. And you, you write that... It also, you, you do think it's important to study bits of history that feel like they matter in the present. Well, yes. I, I think there are two things. First of all, the historian's own curiosity must be the impulse to start. When I was a girl and a young student, I especially wanted to find out about people who weren't famous, who weren't the queens and the kings and the movers and shakers, as they were called, the more modest people, the working people, ultimately also the working women. It, to, to begin with, it was my curiosity to find out about them. And yes, I would use the phrase matter because I felt that their lives were not only fascinating, but they mattered to the future. I'm reminded along this line of a, a witty phrase put by one of your most distinguished English historians, John Eliot, after I, much later in life, wrote a book about a peasant, Martin Gare, and it, which uh, was connected with a film and then had a certain wide readership. And John Eliot very wittily said, we are at quite a pass, things are quite a miss, if Martin Gare is going to be better known than Martin Luther. <laughs> And I thought that was a very witty and telling remark. And I, I wrote something to explain that, in a way, Martin Gare, the, the peasant, about whom stories became known because somebody took his place during a, a war in the 16th century and for three years seemed to fool the wife that he was really Martin Gare, the disappeared Martin Gare, but that, in a way, a story about a peasant could matter in as much as a story about a famous mover and shaker like Martin Luther. Martin Luther put a reformation in place, but he couldn't do it without the support of peasants. And indeed, uh, peasant revolts were both troubling and important for the success of the Reformation. And similarly, the life of a peasant, in this case a peasant where there was imposture and dissimulation, is telling, is important, for the whole kinds of procedures that led to religious change. Indeed, when people wanted to attack Martin Luther, the great reformer, they would attack him as an imposter. So the concept of a peasant imposter turns out to be not irrelevant to understanding some of the great religious debates. Well, I've jumped from my initial interest in history that, that might matter too much later in my life. So I, I would just sort of pull it together by saying that it's a combination of one's own excitement and curiosity about a quest. It's something that to you seems intriguing and worth studying, but that you hope can make a difference to the way people think 
about their own time, the way they think about the possibilities in their own time, the way they might think about cruelty or generosity, or about justice or injustice, that it doesn't determine your ideas on those, those big problems and big themes, but hopefully it can help. I share that hope I most fervently. Looking back now at seven decades of, of writing and researching history alongside all these wonderful, illustrious people that you count as friends and colleagues, do you think history has had that effect? Do, do you think that, that, because too many people are a bit depressed about the state of the modern world at the moment and, and the rise of political extremes, the coarseness of discourse on social media, the worrying strands of the re-emergence of the far right in Europe and elsewhere, do you think that historians... Have helped, have are busy trying to create a better kind of public square at the moment. I do think that historians, and I think of the wide range of them, are uh, writing texts that could matter. I do think those texts are out there. I think of work that has been done by Mark Mazower, Balkans in World War Two. I think of work that has been done by Margaret Macmillan on World War One and the Treaty of Versailles. Uh, I can think of many examples of, of excellent historians who have given us resources to look at the current situations. In some of my own work, I hope that writing that I have done most recently on Muslims and a 16th century Muslim who tried to explain his, his world of Islam to Europeans, a, a man named Leo Africanus, I hope that the perspective in that book could help people not familiar with Islam about the range of sensibilities and thought in the world of Islam and is seen in the past as well as today. Whether it has had an impact is another matter. Who our readers are, who those who see us on podcasts or listen to us or on television, is a very wide group. And the, the people that I hear from I know do take these ideas uh, seriously. It does affect the way in which they perceive the world in which they live. I do think that it's made a difference, for instance, in some of the, the dialogue on matters of immigration. Uh, the, the political discourse, I think, is enriched when people have drawn upon historical examples to show the range of possibilities, enriching possibilities, economic possibilities, cultural possibilities, that come from a country that knows how to welcome immigrants and showing the range of, of immigrant lives. Whether this is determining in the consequences, political consequences, as opposed to affecting a small number of people, I'll just say, I hope so. I hope it helps. You, you only can do what you want. You try to reach out to people and hope it can make an impact. I have, in my own case, have tried to enlarge the audience that might be reached by the kind of work I do, first years ago by working on a historical film, and then more recently on collaborating and being an assistant on a play, a historical play, but one that is set in pleasant-day Jerusalem and has both Jews and Arabs in its cast of characters, a, a sensitive, politically important theme. And I was very pleased to hear the kinds of thoughtful discussion of the audience. After the play, I would always listen to an intermission or afterward, people were asking questions and thinking in a way that I thought was more open-minded, 
about relations between Jews and Arabs, and that's something one can hope for. Well, we certainly do hope for that. What about your career? It's now stretching back into the into history. Um, yes. Well, we have a lot of discussion around the world at the moment about the struggles that women have faced in the academy, well, of course, in, in any professional context. But how do you look back on your first year? Was it a struggle to break into the elevated circles of, of internationally recognised <laughs> historians? Or, and, and is it easier now, do you think, for young women, young students that are, that are coming through that you're mentoring? Well... I started, yes, back in the 1950s, long before you were born or many of your listeners. And there were very, very few women in American history departments at that time. But I, first of all, I loved doing history so much, I kind of didn't care. And secondly, I had huge support for my husband. I got married when I was an undergraduate at university. And so I had huge support from him. And I guess I had a lot of chutzpah or something. I just thought it's going to be okay. I had challenges. I don't mean that I didn't, I walked into a situation where there were no challenges, but I just wanted so much to teach that I I was in good spirits. But the second thing I'd say, and I advised this to all of my students, both women and men actually, but I immediately, when I started my first teaching at Brown University, I immediately looked for other women in the departments at Brown, there weren't many of them, and had a network from the very beginning of other women who was interested in in their scholarship, but just we supported each other. And there were always a few men in the department, a few who welcomed the presence of, of women. So that made it a little bit easier. It's true that every job I had at Brown, at Berkeley, at Toronto, and at Princeton, I did have to go through the same thing. That is to get people used to being a female in an apartment, finding a network of women, st- sticking together, talking to the dean if we had to. And in my case, I, after a while, began to teach the history of women. That was not to begin with gender and women was something that it took me a while to come to uh, in my own work. But when I did in the early 1970s, that also was, a, I thought, a, an advancement in not only scholarship, but in making familiar the presence of women on the campus. Is it easier today? There are certainly many more women in all the departments that I have ever that I know. More women and men, people of transgender and so forth. That is certainly the case. I by no means think that thinking about gender or working toward comfortable relations is finished. Almost every generation needs to think about this, and this is a creative thing. It isn't just a problem. It's, it's great. It's, it's one of the wonderful challenges of life, to think of what gender means, about how we relate to each other. Here, I think the history of women is an enormous resource, and in the classes that I taught and that continue to be taught here at Toronto to large audiences, including audiences with many first-generation young people, the many immigrants, families that that, uh, supply their wonderful students to our university. I think that teaching the history of women and gender, sexuality, gender relations, is an enormous resource in thinking about how we relate to each other today. I'm so glad about that possibility. So, yes, things are better in terms of gender relations. No, the problem is not resolved. We should embrace it as a creative challenge in our life. 
and think about ways that men and women, transgender, whatever, uh, relate to each other and can contribute uh, to creating a better society. Speaking of contributing to better society, I understand the humanities, particularly in the US, are suffering at the moment. We know they are in the UK. We're being told we need to concentrate on STEM subjects and computer coding and engineering and things. What can you say about the young people, the students that are coming through studying history? Are they changing in their complexion and their ambition? Are, they, are there fewer? Is it, is it a struggle to get hold of good students these days? Well, I'm retired at 91, although I continue to sit on doctoral theses and go to many of the meetings that, that they have. The history here is continues to do quite well, maybe because of certain fields, such as the gender courses are, are very large. The history of the book, the history of literacy, the history of the book, is one of the largest programs at the University of Toronto. I think partly because it's connected with the movement from manuscripts to books to digitization to the whole world of communication. So if you think of it in a very wide scale, it may be declining in relationship to the business school or the technical programs, but it's a very substantial part of the humanities. And I think that it's being taken in very interesting new directions, especially, as I say, if you, if you widen it. The other important thing here is the uh, interest in global history, that is, history that is not only connected to Canada or the North America, which, of course, continues to be important, but it's looking at uh, history in the wider world. I think that continues to be important, non, non-Western history, and I'm very myself committed to that. But to come back to your problem about the future of the humanities, I, I think that the, the importance of digitization and the new kinds of social media have a r- real possibility for the humanities for the world of thought, of philosophy, of storytelling. I think that that can be an answer to those who think that the only way to make, get a job uh, is to go on in hard sciences and the sciences as much as I respect those. So I think we should respond to decline in, in humanities enrollment by stressing the, the possibilities that they have, the immense importance of holding on to areas where values, sensibilities, uh, ideas, and to go back to what we started with, storytelling, uh, are at the center, and to use our creativity, as I think you have uh, with your podcast, to uh, find ways to reach people uh, with these stories. So I won't give up. (laughs) Speaking of not giving up, tell us, you work on such a dizzying array of topics and periods and ideas. Early modernist, is it fair to call you in, in general? 16th, 17th century is your, is your first love? I started out there. You know, it's the century of Shakespeare and, and of François Rabelais. To begin with, those were my the first interests. I thought, wow, if it's, this is a century that has men, people, men like that in it. I later discovered some quite wonderful women in the same period. I was initially deeply interested in it because it seemed to me, this is when I was a graduate student long ago, that it seemed to me a, a period that was so important in the generation, the creation of the issues that, that face us today. And of course, this is back in the 50s, and I was thinking about capitalism and socialism, and this is not right after World War II, and, and uh, issues of individualism and competition. So many of those issues seem to me to be created in their 
and uh, out of the particular cluster of economic and social and religious change in the 16th century, I now, I, I still continue to find that an interesting period, that my, my Muslim, my Leo Africanus, is another fascinating example of cultural ex- crossing Muslim-Christian in, in that period. I still find it fascinating. I think any period is interesting. I'm also doing some related work on the 19th century. I've become interested in slavery in the Dutch colony of Suriname in the 17th and 18th century. To me, it's the, it's the human issue, the, the, the problem, the form of behavior. I come across a fascinating document in the archives, a, a trial record <laughs> of a kind. One of them recently was involved a, a relationship between a Jewish settler woman in, in Suriname and her indigenous slave. They had an in, intimate and perhaps love, loving relationship and it led to a court case. What a story to find that in the early 18th century archives. I find that, I think, what's going on here? So wherever you find it, it can be of value. I just happened to have started in those centuries. I wandered in my geography, having started in France. I'm now off in North Africa with my Muslim or off in the Caribbean Atlantic with my Suriname uh, slaves. I'll go wherever wherever history calls. <laughs> That's a great title for the autobiography. Um, so, so there's lots of young history students listening to this and, and some historians, they'll be thrilled to hear they have chosen a career and chosen a hobby or chosen a passion which they can pursue forever. There is no age bar on history. And I know the young are doing wonderful work, so I salute them. Thank you so much for coming for coming on this podcast and reigniting my love of history, and you're an inspiration, so thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Ted Snow. Thank you. Hi everyone, it's me, Dan Snow. Just a quick request. It's so annoying and I hate it when other podcasts do this, but now I'm doing it and I hate myself. Please, please go onto iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts and give us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps, basically boosts up the chart, which is good. And then more people listen, which is nice. So if you could do that, I'd be very grateful. I understand if you don't subscribe to my TV channel. I understand if you don't buy my calendar, but this is free. Come on, do me a favor. Thanks.